Wow. What a week. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's so exciting to see so many of you here. Um, thank you, Tara, for the introduction. I'm Sydney Brownstone, online editor for KUOW Public Radio here in Seattle. Uh, as journalists, our job is to report the truth, and it can be hard, and it takes courage. And this tumultuous political landscape in a week like this one, the reporting really makes a difference, and it's more important now than ever. That's why I'm really, really excited to introduce Joshua Johnson. Please give him another round of applause. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Thank you. So in your program, you're going to see a note card. That's really important because it's where you'll get to write down questions. So at the end of the night, when I'm done doing my spiel with Joshua, uh, I'll be taking questions from you. Dustin and Hannah will be running them up to me. So if you've got a good one, write it down, save it, and flag one of those two, and we'll answer them. Um, I'm just going to dive right in. So this has been a week. Has it ever? <laughs> it's been a day. It's been, it's been a like, it's been a, a 12 hours, basically. It's been a very long 12 hours and a lifetime. Um, and it may not be over. My phone's on airplane mode, so I have no idea <laughs> if, it's, if the day is not over yet. That is so smart. <laughs> okay, so just in thinking about uh, this week and what's going on in the Senate Judiciary Committee where Brett Kavanaugh has been testifying against his accuser, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, how do you help people even begin to make sense of this? Do you have a method for approaching these kinds of issues? Well, the first thing we try to do is just to make sure that people have the facts of kind of where things stand. That's job one, obviously. And today, particularly, was the Friday News Roundup. And a lot of what I ended up doing was just kind of breaking news coverage because the committee vote was happening while we were live. But there were also other things happening like the two women who intercepted Senator Jeff Flake on the elevator. Do you see that? That was happening kind of as we were going on the air. So we called back to DC and, and, I, and said, grab that tape. And so they pulled that tape. And by the time we got on the air, you know, instead of starting with, OK, here's the basics of the first story, OK, panelists, give us some context, I basically started by saying, let me just explain where we are right now. And just, you know, here's what we expected to have happen. Here's what occurred, and this is what we think is going to happen next, and now let's contextualize it. So part of it is just being flexible and being able to just say, we don't know what's going to happen next, but here's what we do now. It's kind of the essence of all breaking news coverage. I actually think that covering breaking news in some ways is, is easier than covering conventional news stories that you can plan, because all you can say is what you know and you know very little. So it forces you to be economical, and it forces you to be fairly conservative in your verbiage and to not get ahead of your skis. So I think the first thing that we do is just make sure everyone understands what's going on. One of the things that we do on 1A that I think sets us apart is that we try to ground the conversation often in people's lived experiences, often when you hear the beginning of the show with the theme music, the part that's called the billboard. It'll end with us saying, share what you know about X. This is not new to us. This is something that they've done on other programs like The Takeaway, Talk of the Nation used to do this. And the idea is that we ground the conversation in how it affects people's lives. We ask you to tell your story. 
it's easy to argue with someone's opinion or with someone's argument or that article that I ripped out, that editorial from the paper that I liked so much that reflects what I want to say, but I can't argue your life. Like, you are the expert on your own story. And often by starting with how people are affected in tangible, real-world ways, it grounds especially political and policy discussions in the real lives of real people as opposed to the kind of DC Beltway game of who's up and who's down. And then from there, it's much easier to have the debate because it humanizes it. It makes it clear that like, okay, you, you can be as ticked off about this as you want, but whatever decision we make will affect people in real ways, and it, it requires the conversation to be more respectful and more humane as a result. That, that tends to make it a little bit easier, especially with something like what Professor Ford described happened to her that is so triggering for so many people. One of the statistics that Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking member on the committee, mentioned early on is that according to the CDC, one in three women and one in six men will be victims of sexual violence at some point in their life. So there's no way that you can talk about something like this and not have a lot of people go, and one of the things we try to do is to lean into that, to acknowledge it, and to give people a chance to kind of, to speak their truth, to share what they know, to share what happened to them. It, it, it almost equalizes people because it gives you a chance to say what's in, on your heart, and it gives us a chance to show that we heard you, and it lets us validate one another, and then the rest of the conversation isn't necessarily easier, but it, it's much more productive. So speaking of breaking news, uh, I want to apologize. My phone is going off in my pocket. Today was a break, big breaking news day for me, so apologies for that. It's okay. Um, it, was a, it was a big breaking news. I think everybody's <laughs> phone was, did anybody have to silence their phone at some point during the day? Like, leave me alone! And you just didn't want to hear notifications anymore? Yeah, that was, that was the welcome to our life. Yeah, it is, it is the life. But that was I, the day. I want to lean into something that you said. So with the Kavanaugh hearings, it seems like there's a really big gulf between people who see Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony and empathize deeply with it and are enraged by the committee proceedings. And then there's this other group of people who see Kavanaugh test testifying and feel enraged by the way he's being treated. Can you even talk to both of those groups at the same time? Sure, sure. Because it's not my job to make them like each other. It's just my job to help them hear each other. Does that make sense? I, 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 I cannot be concerned. I can't make you like me. You're and very likable. And I'm a, very and I'm a nice guy. And I can't make you like me. There are people who are going to hate me no matter what I do. There are people who are going to hate me because I'm trying to get them to like me. So I can't worry about that. If I can't control whether you like me, how can I control if you like someone you don't know, who you only know through their politics? That is none of my business, and it's out of my control. What I can do is focus on the thing I can influence, which is your awareness, which is your alertness, which is your acquaintance with the lives of other people, and hopefully humanize them a bit so you don't just see them as this example of you know, the sharks and you are a jet, you're a jet all the way. Like, I can do that. But forcing people to like each other is out of my control. What I can do is try to make room for people to argue in a useful way. I don't think it makes 
sense to force opposite sides to agree with each other. That's different from trying to find common ground because there probably is some common ground. There are people who felt bad for both Professor Ford and Judge Kavanaugh because they're both sucked into this awful partisan situation and both of their lives are turned upside down. There are plenty of people who look at both of them like nobody wins this. But for those people who are super polarized, maybe they should argue. Maybe we can help them argue in a way that is useful, that's productive. So by the time they walk away from one another, they will at least have argued really understanding where the other person's coming from and not just kind of having some cable news caricature that was painted for them be the only thing they know. They'll actually know, oh, that's a human being who thinks this thing I hate. I still hate it, but I don't hate you for thinking it. That's what I can do. Have you ever seen someone's perspective or opinion change over the course of an interview? We've had interviews, I don't know if their perspective changed, but we've had interviews where people expressed their areas of agreement, where they had common ground. That's kind of the most that, that I worry about for an interview. Uh, if, if they do find areas of, of agreement, that's great. If their perspective changes, that's great too, but part of our function as a program is to depict the argument as it is and allow our audience to be part of that, especially because often having the argument is the thing that a lot of people wish they could do because they're used to having the argument with their spouse or their coworkers or their parents or their loved ones and it never goes well. But when we have the argument on 1A, we can govern it in such a way that you, you get what you were looking for when you were trying to explain to your, to your brother-in-law why you think the way you think, but he was just, ah, I think you're crazy, you don't understand, if you would just, and it just goes nowhere. Often just being able to hear the argument you wish you could have is enough. You don't need to find common ground. You just need to know that what you're thinking you're not just thinking to yourself in the ether, but that the nation, more of it, some of it, understands what you're thinking, and that's what we can do. What about listeners? Have you done an episode of 1A where you've gotten a lot of listener feedback saying, you know what, I actually used to think differently, and as a result of listening to your show, I have a different perspective on this. Yeah, we do. We get, a, we, we get feedback like that pretty frequently, not every day. Is there an episode that stands out in particular? not off the top of my head, but it's kind of part of the, it's one of the constants of the program. It's not only I used to you know, think this way, but I've changed my opinion. It's also I used to think that this topic was not worth my time, but the way you presented it hooked me. Hmm. It's often just opening people's eyes to something that they thought was not, was not worthy of their time. And we've done shows about all kinds of things and had very deep conversations. You know, we've done shows on the makeup business. We've done shows on cover songs. We, we did an hour on Bruce Lee not too long ago, and, which was one of my favorite shows. And I grew up just revering Bruce Lee, so I was very happy when we did that show. Um, Bruce Lee was it. He was it. You're I, in the right place for talking I about Bruce right Lee. I am the right place. I still remember watching Enter the Dragon for the first time, and that bad guy O'Hara breaks the board, and Bruce Lee says, boards don't hit back. And I was like, ooh, this finna be good. 
And it was. I loved it. I loved it. But anyway, often we'll have people who will maybe tweet at the beginning of the show and say, I can't believe that my NPR station is wasting time talking about this subject. I've been a member of my station since the boys came back from Gettysburg. And all this time, I can't... <laughs> and occasionally we'll read one of those on the air just to kind of say, okay, for people who feel this way, why do you think it counts? I don't feel good about doing that anymore because it's, it's, it's our job to just show you and it's okay if you're skeptical. It's okay if you hear a point of view on our show that you don't like. Our job is to present it, not so that you'll like it, but so that you'll get it. And, and it's our job to present it so that, that you're drawn into it. I, anyone who knows me has heard me say this a thousand times, but this will be the thousand and first. It's not your job to be interested. It's our job to be interesting. We have to hook you. This is a marketplace of ideas. We're here to compete, and we play to win, and we believe we have the best conversation. So if we do, we have to build this in a way so that you know that you're welcome, so that you know that we're not going to pull any punches, so that you know that we're going to make sure everyone's treated with respect, and so that you know that we've done our homework. We're not putting something on for frivolous reasons. And then if people say their minds were changed or not, then that's fine as long as the time they spent with us was time well spent. What you do with what you get from us, I can't control. We can control that you get our best. And whatever you choose to do with it intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, that's, that's your business. I want to return to the marketplace of ideas, that very interesting marketplace. So obviously your, your show is 1A. Your swag has the First Amendment quoted on the back. Yes. When we talk about the marketplace of ideas, the... The idea is that the best ideas float, the worst ideas sink, the cream of the cream rises to the top. But the marketplace of ideas is also a place where really kind of one could argue dangerous ideas get introduced. And it's a place also where white supremacists have developed a playbook, right? You go to your you write to your local radio station, you say, Can I get on the air? And then their goal is to try and appear normal. So when you're participating in this marketplace of ideas, are there some ideas that you rule out? Or are all ideas welcome? How do you f strike that balance? I don't think all ideas are welcome, no. I mean, no, all ideas are not welcome in all places. And I think that, that the ability to say, that's not what we do here, is perfectly legit. Um, you know, we don't want someone who's gonna come on the show and just be vulgar for example, or be, be, you know, be rude to our guests. That's not, that's not the way we, we comport ourselves. I think part of what we have to think through is the value of inviting certain people on. And we've had those debates. You know, if we, we had a debate recently in our team, and it's kind of an unresolved question, but if we got an opportunity to interview Steve Bannon, would we interview him? And we debated that pretty hotly. Not everyone agreed. There was disagreement. Like, we were not unanimous one way or the other, trying to weigh the merits versus the potential detriment. Would he come on and just play us? Because he knows, like, the, being able to go on a mainstream media outlet and just kind of thump his chest is the way that he creates social currency. Do we want to be part of that? On the other hand, he has shifted his attention to Europe and doing the same thing with populism in Europe that he did in the US. That's something that's worth explication. Do we want to be part of that? Like, we went back and forth a lot. Now, he has not accepted our interview uh, you know, request, so that probably will not happen. 
But it's a discussion that's worth having. I mean, just because somebody's idea is distasteful doesn't mean it doesn't bear picking apart. It also doesn't make it valuable for me to talk to them. I mean, I don't necessarily want to do battle with any guest for an hour. For that matter, do we do it live or do we tape it? One of the ideas that came out was, well, let's, if we got a chance to do it, we could tape the interview and then after the interview ran, decide what to do with it. Maybe we run excerpts of it, whole, unedited, so he couldn't claim, oh, you edited my words, and then have live guests react to it, and then have you, the audience, react to it, and then maybe we post the whole thing online. Like, there's all kinds of different ways to go about it. Technology gives us many more options than just live to the nation all at once. So it, it gives us more ways to, to deal with it. I do think we have to be careful not to shy away from ideas that are uncomfortable because they're, because they're uncomfortable. Um, I am, I'm gonna, I'm gonna geek out for just a second. Uh, well, I already geeked out about Bruce Lee, so we'll be two for two. Um, I am a bit of a Harry Potter fan. And yes, thank you, my people, my people. And one of the running storylines that I loved in the series of the original books had to do with the teaching of a required course at Hogwarts called Defense Against the Dark Arts. If you remember, every year, there was a different Defense Against the Dark Arts instructor, right? You had Professor Quirrell, who turned out to be, you know, an associate of he who must not be named. You had Remus Lupin, who was one of the best instructors, but he ended up getting fired, basically, for being what he was, so he was discriminated out of a job. He was you a werewolf. He was a werewolf, exactly. I was trying not to spoil it for people who didn't know. I'm sorry. That's all right. You had... Not you sorry. Ha not sorry. You had Severus Snape, who had a little dark arts in him anyway. You had Professor Mad-Eye Moody, who was an auror, who hunted down these bad guys. You had um, Dolores Umbridge, who was, this bookworm, who was this very, like, bureaucratic bookworm who refused to teach the students to do anything, so they thought to themselves. There was this, this storyline going back and forth and back and forth of what's the best way to teach students how to deal with evil. And I love that storyline, because I'm in the Remus Lupin Mad-Eye Moody camp. <laughs> James Baldwin once said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. So if I don't teach you, if I don't show you, when you confront this for yourself, you're screwed. And it will be my fault. Because I had the capacity to show you, and I didn't. I thought it was inappropriate, or I thought it wasn't polite, or I thought this wasn't the kind of thing nice people talked about, or I didn't want to upset anybody. And when you finally had a moment where this political issue hit you in the face, you were ill-equipped to deal with it. Not even to win the argument, but to endure it, to listen to view the person across from you as a person and not as a threat, not merely as an opponent, not merely as a set of politics, not merely as a set of beliefs, but as a person who has a set of politics, a person who has a set of beliefs. And I think our inability to do this kind of defense against the dark arts work, to look at the things in our culture that make us uncomfortable and practice dealing with them is what's poisoning our debate. It's not just the white supremacists. They're successful because we don't know how to deal with them, because we struggle to have the debate. I'm not scared of a white supremacist. I'm a black man hosting on NPR. He's a guest. He's gone after 53 minutes. I'll be here all week. 
So why would I be scared of him? On the other hand, he's also a guest in our house. And we've made a decision to treat everyone who comes on 1A with decency and with respect and with a sense of welcome. Can we do that and not make you, our audience, who are also guests in our house, feel like we've compromised your wellness for his sake? That's the debate. But I don't see a problem with them. I, I tend to be less afraid of dealing with the dementors than, than some, but you have to know how to deal with them. I really appreciate the Harry Potter framing here. Does um, that help? Yeah. When I was 11, I auditioned to be the Hermione Granger. Like I, I sent in a video, but that's neither here nor there. You, uh, you know, I didn't... And I didn't know until, because I saw the movies first and then I read the books, I did not know Hermione was a girl of color. Yeah. Hermione's black. Yeah. In the books. And she's black in the new play, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. They cast a black actress to play oh. her. And so I, I was just kind of like, nothing against Emma Watson. I love Emma Watson. But I was like, well, damn, Emma Watson, what are you doing there? Well, speaking of assuming whiteness, yeah. I want to talk to you. Was that a segue? I made it one. How does that happen? I did it. Uh... <laughs> I want to talk about objectivity. Mm. Do you believe in it? Is it useful? I, yes, I do believe in it. How I, do you I, define it? Let For our audience, let's define the term. Well, uh, for me, I think of objectivity as, as kind of a, 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 an, a, a sense of, of intellectual neutral purity, where you take no emotional or personal stake in what you're discussing. You treat all things as being kind of equal and you weigh them very kind of purely and dispassionately. That's to me objectivity. I tend to view my stance on my work less as being objective or impartial and more as being clinical. I prefer a clinical view of journalism. Why, why the difference? When you think about a clinician who's studying a disease, they want to understand the disease as much as possible, but they're not neutral about a cure. But I can't spend my time in the lab thinking about how much I hate HIV or breast cancer or sickle cell or whatever because then I can't do my job. I can't sit in the lab going, I have devoted myself to finding a cure for this dread disease. And I spent years in college and university and graduate school training for the day when I would be the one who sitting here at this lab bench would be able to find the solution to end this dread scourge. And so I shall spend my entire life, I shall devote every ounce of my energy, every fiber of my being to crusading against this disease. And wherever this disease rears its ugly head, I shall stand up and I shall stand in the breach until no one shall suffer this scourge again. Nobody does that. What you do is you go to the lab, you put your bag down, you talk to your coworkers, you complain about the two-hour staff meeting you got to have at three, and then you sit down and you proceed to learn about this disease. And someday you hope there's a cure. You focus. Because if you can't focus, you can't function. The studio is my lab. And before I go in, I try to wash my hands very thoroughly. And I am trying to wash off bias, I'm trying to wash off preconception, stereotype, misjudgment, misinformation, disinformation, and go in and just understand what's ahead of me to just make sense of it. When I leave my lab, all of those things that I washed off, they're going to jump right back on me because they're part of me. But I don't need to, to try to get rid of them forever. I just need to go into the lab as clean as possible so I don't contaminate my sample. 
I am not objective about racism. But I can have a clinical conversation, for example, and have with someone who believes that Confederate statues should be allowed to stand in public. I can have that conversation. What does it mean to you when you see these statues? When these statues come down, what goes through your head, what goes through your heart when you see that? Do you understand that these statues are an artifact of the past that does not comport with the reality of the Civil War? Do you get that? I can have that conversation in a very clinical way without ceding the truth that I'm not objective about racism. I'm not objective about sexism. I think that a man who treats a woman like a piece of meat is not a man. He's a boy, and he needs to be treated as such. So I'm not objective about sexism. I can have a clinical conversation with a man who's grappling to find his way in the era of Me Too. Talk to me about what your experiences with learning how to interact with women were like. Where did you learn your gender norms? Give me a sense of where you're struggling. What kinds of interactions perplex you? And where do you think that the problem is? I can have that conversation. And I don't have to pretend that I am not a human being on this planet. I'm not objective about climate change. Climate change is real. The science is there. But I can have a very clinical conversation with someone who won't buy it. I'm not going to argue whether climate change is real, because it's proven. But I can talk to you about what your belief means for you in your life. So the way I view it is just taking myself out of it enough to just treat you as a person whose story needs telling. And then we can deal with societal issues. That's part of the function of journalism, is to make it easier for us to make sense of the world and improve the democracy. That's part of our job. That's why we're protected in the First Amendment. But it doesn't require me to be an android. That prevents me from being a citizen. My work requires me to treat you with decency and with respect and to welcome you and to let you be heard, but I can do it in a way that's clinical rather than pretending I feel nothing about anything. That's something that I often think about. You know, as journalists, we're also people, and sometimes in these really divisive issues, we have skin in the game. And when I, I, when I think about objectivity, I struggle with it sometimes because I think, oh, well, what is neutrality? Is it just white male subjectivity? Why are we assuming that perspective to begin with? I don't know if, if you think about it that way. I, I hear you. I mean, I, I try to kind of pull back farther and just say, how can I help tell this story? You know, it, it doesn't, I'm, and I'm not saying that every journalist should be like me. I'm not saying every journalist should be clinical, objective, neutral, whatever. There's room for advocacy journalism. If that's what you want to, I'm not saying that the Nation and the National Review should go out of print. Like, if that's what you want to read, read it. There are editorial boards for very, very good reasons. There are good reasons to have opinionated, thoughtful people share their well-informed opinions. I am all for that. And if that's the kind of work you want to do, do it. There's a need for it. Go be opinionated, and more power to you. For me, what I choose to do is try to be that space where everyone can, can show up and where no one has to feel turned away as long as they're willing to treat the other people in the room with respect and with decency. If that's not the kind of journalism you want, okay, go, go find what you're looking for. But for me, that works. And I think if you're doing this kind of work, it behooves us to be able to just view ourselves in many cases as conduits for someone else's story so that it's told 
as clearly as possible. And then once you really understand that story, you can choose what you want to do with it. That's, that's this kind of work. Another thing I, I wonder about is if listeners assume you can't be objective for, for, as a journalist because of identity. Is that something that you've ever had to confront? Yeah, but I showed them. <laughs> Just do your job. Like, there's always going to be, there's always going to be people who don't like you. There's always going to be people who think that public radio is bought and sold by George Soros. There's always going to be people who think whatever they're going to think. But, you know, my job is just do what James Cagney recommended. Go in there, plant your feet, and tell the truth. That's my job. And then, if I win you over, that's fine. And if I don't, we may not be for you. And that's fine, too. Our job is to offer this up. There's a scene in the movie Malcolm X where Malcolm, who's played by Denzel Washington, is about to be introduced by Elijah Muhammad, who's played by Al Freeman Jr., as the national minister to the Nation of Islam. And Elijah Muhammad has this exchange with Malcolm to kind of govern the work he's about to do. He takes a glass of water and he pours the ink out of his inkwell into the water. And he said, here's a glass of water. Here's a glass, it's dirty, the water's foul. If you offer this to the people and they have no choice, they'll drink it if they're thirsty. Then he pours another glass, leaves the water alone, and he says, but if you offer them this glass and let them make their own decision, they will always choose the pure vessel. My job is to help present the pure vessel. My job is not to slap the ink out of your hand. My job is to let you choose it's a marketplace of ideas. You choose. You buy with your time. And if you're not ready to be part of what we're offering, that's okay. But we have to keep offering it so that when the day comes when you realize that what you've been consuming has been poisoning you and you look for something else, you will remember, oh, they were kind of nice. They treated me well all those years ago. Maybe I should, where are they? That's my job. I'm wondering if you ever come across a situation or a debate that you just don't know how to navigate. Uh, where your, your tools and your tools. Were toolkit... you listening today? <laughs> Do you know my life? Where, where you look at your tools, you look at your, your clinician's toolkit, and you go, I don't know if this is applicable, or I'm applying it, and it's not getting through. I'm at a loss. Has that ever happened to you? Almost never because I'm okay saying I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> which is often. I'm fine saying like, you know, where should I start? Like, what am I looking at here? Like, just tell me your story. That's, that's fine. Like, it's okay to say, I'm not sure where to begin. Like, just tell me, about, tell me about you. Tell me about, what do people tend to get wrong about you? That's a great place to start. Start, if you, are, if you feel ignorant of something, Start where you are, start with your ignorance, and just admit it. I find people tend to be very nice when I, as this journalist on public radio, who I think people think we know everything for some weird reason, when I just admit my lack of omniscience and just be like, <laughs> people tend to be lovely and they will hold your hand, they'll walk you through it, and if you just kind of let yourself be a student of whatever situation you're in, then, then answers will come. They will seek you out. I also want to ask you about this idea, kind of going back to the objectivity thing, about the Overton window, 
the Overton window is this idea is that there's a range of socially acceptable positions, political positions that you can take to debate. And sometimes when more extremist viewpoints get introduced, the Overton window shifts. So it actually, it doesn't become wider, it just kind of shifts over to one side or where more extremist views become the norm. I'm wondering if that's something that you think about and how you handle it. I do think about it. Um, it is a risk. This goes back to your question about you know, having white supremacists on the air or whether we would interview Steve Bannon, for example. So I do understand the concern. And in this day and age where technology makes it so much easier for everyone to be heard at equal volume, it's, it's a big challenge. I also know that the Overton window of its day excluded such radical ideas as women's suffrage and the abolition of slavery and marriage equality and letting Chinese people own land or own businesses. I mean, especially in the West Coast, California, et cetera. Like that was outside the Overton window at one time. And I know that political thought in this democracy is designed to change. I don't know what the next evolution is. I have personal feelings on what it ought to be. Those are gonna stay personal, but I also know that we are designed to shift. And so there's this tension in my job where I'm kind of chronicling the natural progression of the country, but I'm also a citizen but I made this decision to do this work, but it also affects me. Like, it's, it's tough, it's tough. And I, I can't think of a time when I regretted just doing my work through the values that I've chosen to, to do it. I, I don't regret not being, you know, an advocate pounding my fist on the table. It's almost like, I have a different kind of influence because I'm not pounding my fist on the table. It's, um, I'll make another Bruce Lee reference from Enter the Dragon, this art of fighting without fighting. I, that works for me. I think that's why I love Bruce Lee so much. It just kind of, it makes sense to just kind of be able to fit whatever circumstances we have to cover to, to, to be formless and shapeless like water, to kind of, to, to not be so rigid intellectually that I'm not adaptable to whatever the news is and not be so married to my own Overton window that I refuse to let it shift, but that I can take what reality is presenting, decide as a citizen, but let my profession be to help you navigate it. That to me is very, it's gratifying even though it's difficult, it's still gratifying. By the way, if you ever end up teaching like a master's journalism course in how Harry Potter and Bruce Lee can apply it to journalism, I will pay for that. I will throw what money I have at that. You know um, what? If anyone wants to fund it, my number is 202-88. <laughs> well, no, no. so speaking of J school, this is another segue. Uh, sometimes they teach you in J school you want to imagine your audience. You want to think about your fictional audience. And I have been uh, binging this podcast called Making Oprah. Yes. From WBEZ. Yes. It's, All day. Yes. It's excellent. And one have of you, has, has, has no one in this audience heard Making Oprah? 
You've heard it? Yes. Okay, you too. You've heard it. You're my friends. The rest of you, I'd... You guys should listen to it. It's it's yes. really excellent. There were so many things I, I thought I knew about Oprah and did not know. It's fantastic. One of the things... It's really good. It's good. One of the things I didn't know about Oprah is that in the early days of her national show, the producers were like, okay, what's, what's going to work for our show? And they were thinking, okay, well, we have to come up with this fictional fictional viewer okay and her name is Susie and she is a suburban housewife she's a mom what would Susie like so whenever they had an idea for a show they'd be like okay well would Susie go for this and I was like you know what that's brilliant because I've never had a fictional reader or listener that I could you know have a conversation with an imaginary conversation with I'm wondering if do you have a, an imaginary friend <laughs> uh like <laughs> A fictional listener that you confer that with. That sounds sometimes. like you asked me uh, like a, a two different questions, really. I, I will give two different answers. Okay, clearly, um, his name is Herb. I think. Well, the one thing that I do take from Oprah is what I when we're trying to figure out how to how to promote a show or how to pitch it. I like to do the next Oprah test. Like you, you remember sometimes Oprah had those five second commercials, like how to lose ten pounds in time for the summer. Next Oprah. I like us to be able to boil down whatever topics we're doing to a, like a next Oprah length promo to see if the idea is simple enough and sticky enough to make people who've never heard us listen. Albert Einstein once said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And often we'll pitch these high lofty ideas and we can't just break it down. But we have to be able to break it down to do a 60 second billboard or a 22 second promo and I like the next Oprah test. Like, what is this show about? You know, taking the nation's temperature on the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, next Oprah. Like, that works. But if it's something super lofty, high and mighty, it may be too, too highfalutin and we may need to bring it down a little bit. In terms of my imaginary listener friend, it's a little different because my imaginary listener is you. It's just you, whoever you are. I always try to remember what the P in NPR stands for. Our job is to serve the entire nation all the time, no matter who you are. And that's really hard to do because we cut across many walks of life. I mean, every NPR listener thinks they know what NPR listeners are like. Mm. You've got a good idea, but believe me, there are plenty of people in our audience who are nothing like you and they love all the exact same programs you love. We have plenty of listeners who, and I've heard from them at events, who say, I'm conservative and I love your show because I feel welcome there. Not realizing that quite a significant chunk of our audience is conservative. The plurality of our audience identifies as politically liberal, but there is a significant conservative Republican listenership that loves NPR and has for a very long time. There are plenty of truck drivers who love public radio because there's a consistent quality of radio from state to state, and after a while, screaming heads on AM talk radio telling you who you're supposed to hate gets old, and you just need something else. And then we are actively trying to appeal to more diverse audiences and younger audiences. Our production staff is very multi-generational and multicultural, mostly women, and so we're trying to think about how to bring people in who have never really listened to public radio before because we can't stop with just the diehards, right? We, I mean, I, I learned about public radio from my mom. 
You know, I was, I was, she had her NPR epiphany and then told me about it when I was 13 and then I listened and I fell in love with it. And we know that there's a lot of NPR hostages in back seats in cars with their parents. <laughs> Some of you, the things you've done to your children, you would be on charges in Geneva right now. But we are list we're trying to talk to them too because one day they're going to reach their late 20s, early 30s, and suddenly get worldly wise, and they're going to want to know what's going on, and they're going to be in some argument with somebody about some story in the news, and they will have gone through all these links on Facebook, on Twitter, that say all these different things, and they're going to say, someone just tell me what happened, what actually happened, and they're going to remember us, and that'll be the day that we make the hook. So our job is to deal with everyone who comes our way. One of the tests that I had to kind of put myself through early in doing this program is figuring out how I wanted to deal with guests. And what finally occurred to me was I needed to deal with every guest exactly the same. And this is a good thought exercise to do. If you had to treat every single person you will ever meet for the rest of your life exactly the same, how would you treat them? What would your standard be? If you had to treat every human being you will encounter from now until the day you die the same. And when I settled on that, it made my job way easier. Because all I had to do was go in the studio and sit down and start talking. I just go. I didn't have to censor myself. I didn't have to attenuate anything. I didn't have to ramp it up. I didn't have to calm down. I just went in and I just treated them like I would want to be treated. And it was pretty easy. And the nice thing about that is, that rule is golden for a reason. Like, everyone just wants to be treated decently, just wants to be treated like a person, just wants to know that you're actually listening. I'll give you one more Oprah quote. She said that every single guest she ever spoke to in 25 years of doing the Oprah Winfrey Show basically wanted validation. They were all asking in one form or another, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does what I say mean anything to you? Everyone wants to be treated with validation. It's that line from The Color Purple. Everything just wants to be loved. Everyone just wants to be seen. Everyone just wants to be validated. That value works for everyone. And it's a good thing because our audience is everyone who hears us. And the way that we appeal to everyone is that we treat them like everyone else. I love that. And I want to hit you back with a, a quote from a rabbi. The rest is commentary. Speaking of, um, <laughs> we want to hear your questions. Um, so if you could pass them to one of these two lovely people, I will flip through them and ask more questions of Joshua from you. I'm so glad that you're into the Oprah podcast as I well. I love it. It's really good. And I love the Donahue parts, too. If we accomplish nothing else tonight, I hope we get you into the Oprah yes. podcast from WBC. There's a lot of Phil Donahue in the podcast kind of telling his story. He's a hoot. He is a hoot. I love Phil Donahue. And they also interview Oprah in the podcast. It's not just about her. Like, they did a series of sit-downs with Oprah Winfrey kind of telling the story of how she did the show. It's, it's worth listening to. Okay, here's a question. Mm. Do you pay any attention to Fox News? Yeah. Yeah. I watch... Yes. I'm so, I, there's an implication there that I wouldn't. 
I watch a little of everything. I watch CNN. I watch Fox News. I watch MSNBC. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an NBC News contributor, so I'm on MSNBC sometimes and on NBC on Meet the Press. Um, but yeah, I watch everything. I have subscriptions to The Nation and The National Review, which is easy because like the digital subscriptions are like six bucks a year. It costs almost nothing. Um, I subscribe to The Times, The Post, and The Wall Street Journal. I read all three. I don't read all three cover to cover every day because the day only has 24 hours. And I have a life, so I don't do that. But yeah, I consume, I consume a little bit of everything. Um, you know, there are, there are journalists on Fox News who I think are solid. And there are journalists on CNN and MSNBC who I think need to go. But you know, I, I think there's, there's something to be gleaned from every source of information that kind of comes my way, even if it is, okay, I want to avoid that. But yeah, I read a little bit of everything and watch a little bit of everything. Listen to a little bit of everything, though I don't listen to much other radio. I will, it's kind of like, you know, you work in a sausage factory, you don't want kielbasa for dinner. So that's the one thing I tend to avoid. But everything else is, is in my diet. Uh, what was your most difficult interview session at 1A? Um, we've, had, it's, well, we've had interviews that were different, difficult for different reasons. We, the interview we did with... Um, some of the interviews we've done after like national tragedies were hard, like the one after the Las Vegas shooting where we just kind of opened the phones and let people opine. That was very emotional. Um, the interview, we, the show we, that we did a show on the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, which is about a girl who commits suicide and leaves a series of tapes, audio tapes, for the people in her life who she says wronged her and kind of goes through the 13 reasons of why she killed herself. And at the end of each tape, they're supposed to hand it to the next person. Very hard to watch, and that was very like I almost I like I almost broke down live. It was really hard to just get through the conversation, thinking about it because I watched three episodes, then I watched the scene at the end where they show her taking her life, um, and it's it was just very it was very emotional. Um, we've done a few interviews with celebrities who shall remain nameless. That at the end of the interview, we were like, we can't, we can't air this. This is not, this, we cannot put this on the radio. And it's a good thing we didn't. Um, I believe that one of the celebrities has since passed. And so I'm glad that we didn't air that because that would have been a bad coda to this person's legacy. Um, but you know, typically when we go in, we kind of know what we're gonna get. We pre-interview the guests. Our producers do a brilliant job, speaking of whom, you should get to know two of the producers of the show who are here, Denise Couture and Avery Kleinman. Please raise your hand so that they are fantastic. And also, the executive producer of 1A, Rupert Allman, is here. He's the boss. And the producers do a really good job of vetting guests. They, they work a lot of late nights and a lot of early mornings and a lot of long weekends and vetting guests and pre-interviewing them and making sure that we know what they're going to say generally before they say it and then writing the scripts and writing the questions and refining it and pulling the right cuts of tape and thinking about the whole arc of the show. So typically when we go in, I'm not flying blind. Certainly not as blindly as we were flying today with the Kavanaugh hearing. That was crazy. But typically when we go in, we kind of know what we're going to get. So if there are problems, potential problems, they know to warn me and I can kind of mitigate them. Oh man, I'm 
I'm really debating whether to read one of these cards because it kind of flies <laughs> in the face of everything we just talked about. But I, I feel like that makes you want to read it. Yeah, that's I'm kind of I'm kind of like the mischievous child here. Um, I need to loosen my tie for this yeah. one because I don't know which way this is gonna go. So right. it asks, "What's your personal opinion of what happened this week in Washington?" I won't tell you. Okay, so that was easy. Yeah. Um, here's another one. I'm a recovering public television professional. When I was in journalism school, they taught that they taught us that two people were always newsworthy, no matter what they might say: the Pope and the president of the USA. Is Donald Trump always newsworthy? How do journalists decide if and when to ignore what he says? I hmm. I think that Donald Trump is generally always newsworthy, yes, especially because he's the president of the United States. Um, but newsworthy will vary. I mean, I've heard it said that news is what people want to keep hidden. Everything else is publicity. And I think that we have to suss out, and this is with any administration, how much is news and how much is publicity. You know who was really good at having a very well-honed, very well-tuned, almost bulletproof media strategy was Barack Obama. He was excellent at it. And sometimes journalists got a little sick of dealing with the administration's PR machine because he was so sterling. He was almost Teflon, and he could be hard to put tough questions to about things like the use of drone strikes, for example. That could be tough to ask the administration about. But I think generally, yeah, he is newsworthy. The question is, where do you put him in the news? You know, news is not just in the reporting. It's in the editing. Is he the lead? Does he go in the third section of the show? Is it a live report? Is it a soundbite? Is it just 20 seconds of text? Like, what do you do with what the president says? And then if the president is just mouthing off and just criticizing someone, is that not newsworthy because he's just mouthing off? Or is it newsworthy because he keeps mouthing off the same people and there's a pattern that needs to be elucidated? Or because he's mouthing off about something that is really very important, but he's doing it in a way that needs to be contextualized. It's a, it's a judgment call. Every day it's a, it's a judgment call. I don't think you can quite boil it down to the Pope's always newsworthy, the President's always newsworthy. If he's news, what kind of news is he? That's the larger question. As for the Pope, I was raised Baptist, so <laughs> I'm not sure I can help you with that one. All right, um, I've gotten like four or five questions here about your socks. Yes! Yes! So what else do they say other than 1A? They say 1A, um, speak freely. And on the toe, I think it's the toe or the heel. I don't remember which, and I'm not going to take off my shoe right now because that would be very strange. It just says WAMU885. These are a pledge gift. We've done a bunch of these. We've done, yeah, I love them. I love my 1A socks. I, I have worn these on Meet the Press. And when I watch it back on the DVR, I'm like, I, I go through to waiting to find my socks, and then, yes! <laughs> yes, the socks are on NBC, yes! We've done, we've done 1A socks, we've done WAMU socks, we've done, we, this time around, for our pledge drive, which we just finished today, and we blew past our goal, thank God. We did socks for our local program called the Kojo Namdi Show, we did socks for his 20th anniversary on the air, and we did another... Cherry Blossom, that's it, the Washington Cherry Blossom Socks. And you can only get them by becoming a sustaining member of WAMU, and then you can pick one of the socks that you want. So there are some people who are like uber members, 
and they keep renewing so that they can get the new socks, and they've got all four pairs. This is the, I think I have this pair in the WAMU socks, but I, I love to, to rock the 1A sock. I was, I was in the green room at Meet the Press, and Chuck Todd was like, your socks. I was like, yes, thank you very much. Don't be jealous. He said, you know, we're starting to do Meet the Press swag. We should do some Meet the Press socks. No, nah, that's a crazy idea. I was like, dude, listen. People will gobble up these socks. If you offered Meet the Press, because the cool, funky socks now, like, you, I'm, okay, so you've seen it too. Like a guy will be in a very navy blue suit with a white shirt and then a gray tie and looking very normal with, with black shoes. And then his socks are like, <laughs> they're just all over the place and very whimsical. Pink, purple, blue, brown, yellow, magenta, fuchsia. All over the place. And, but he'll be walking to the metro. It's very normal, yes. Nothing funny going on over here. And then he sits down and his pant leg hikes up just a few inches and all of a sudden, from under his leg, ah! <laughs> Love these socks. So I think we've learned clinical about the journalism, extremely emotional about the socks. Whimsical That's about the, the place. socks. Exactly. And I'm not really a sock person, but once I... Because normally I'd be wearing plain black socks. But once I saw these socks, I was like, I am wearing these everywhere forever. These are the best socks I've ever owned. It's how you master the dark arts. Yes. Combat the dark arts. This is, you know, this is, you got to have something to scare the mentors away, and, and fun socks can't hurt. Okay, here's another one. What topic are you the most afraid to tackle? Afraid to tackle? Um, myself. Don't like talking about me on the air. I just don't. That's it. I don't that, like talking about me. That's interesting to me because I feel like when I was kind of coming up in journalism, um, there was this explosion of personal memoir, and I felt this intense pressure to kind of mine personal trauma for publication, and it's something I never felt comfortable with. But do you see yourself ever writing about yourself? Maybe later? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not... I'll, if there's something relevant from my life to the topic, I'm fine sharing that, like, in a moment. I'm not scared of that, but in a, in any deeper sense, no. That's that. Oof. Next question, please. Oof. Okay. All right. I thought we were getting somewhere interesting, but okay. I know we were. Next yeah. question. That's why I'm asking. Please move on. So here's here's something relevant to what we were talking about. Would you consider having more conservative voices on your show, and who would you invite? Yeah, I mean, we we try to have conservative. We have conservative voices on our show all the time. Uh, we. We have tried to invite members of the administration constantly. We always, whenever we do a show about the administration or any part of the federal government, we always invite them. We always invite Republican You can ask Denise, who is one of our best bookers, how hard we try to book Republican lawmakers. And it is really, really hard right now to have a bipartisan conversation. Not because we don't ask, but because they won't answer yes. And so we often go to think tank people or like Byron York from the Washington Examiner, who's great. We, we do talk, we have talked to some very prominent thought leaders in conservative circles. You know, Dan Schneider from the American Conservative Union, which is the group that produces CPAC. Um, Kay Coles James, who's the president of the Heritage Foundation. They've been on the program, but there are a lot of conservatives, particularly those who have bones to pick with Donald Trump, who are really hard to book right now. So we're trying, but it's, it's, it's a tough time to, to have these conversations. Even in conservative circles, I've met, I know some conservatives who are struggling amongst themselves to have these conversations because the climate 
is polarized not only across political lines, but within political camps. I mean, you remember what happened in 2016 with the Hillary supporters and the Bernie supporters, and that hasn't gone away. Now, that's probably part of the natural evolution of the Democratic Party, right? Because that, that divide never closed, and that question still needs to be answered. But having that Hillary-Bernie conversation is real tough. It's, it's, it's radioactive and poisonous and toxic. Same thing on the right. Having the pro-Trump, anti-Trump, conservative conversation on the right is also really tough and really toxic. And then have, trying to have a version of that on 1A or in any public forum, that can be, that can be tough too. So we're, we're trying, but it's, it's hard. Right now people either don't quite know how they want to say what they're thinking or they know exactly how they want to say what they're thinking and because they know exactly what to say, they won't say it. So while you wait for Steve Bannon to accept your invitation to the show, <laughs> uh, what other controversial folks and or topics are you and your team discussing? We discuss a little bit of everything. Um, we don't really, we kind of go after a little bit of everything. Right now we're trying to figure out how to discuss this Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford moment. We've had a number of conversations along that regard. The Me Too movement has been uh, ripe for subject matter, but it's not just a matter of how do we dis of, of what subjects. It's a matter of how do we discuss it. You know, what do we want to pull off a piece of this topic and deal with just this one piece? Do we want to deal with the whole topic? Do we want to just open the lines and let people talk? That's more the challenge. It's not. Where do we want to go? We'll go just about anywhere. The trick is, what can we add to the store of human knowledge? Or how can we facilitate it so that you, in your personal experience, if you have personal experience with it, want to share it with us? That's, that's much, more the, much more the issue. That's something that we were struggling with in our own newsroom. You know, what, what's the day two story? Um, how do you localize this national story you go to people who are re-traumatized. You get what they're going through. After that, what angle do we want? What angle do you think is missing? What, what's a conversation you, you wish people were having about this week? About this week? That you haven't seen yet. I think the, well, I, I think the conversation we need to have initially is like, whew, okay, so where are we? Like, what's, what's, what's on your mind? I think just a very basic you know, gut check. We'll sometimes say, maybe this is just a gut check day. I think we've got a gut check day coming up this week. I think Tuesday is going to be largely gut check, either Monday or Tuesday. But sometimes it's just checking in and we don't need an angle because there's the service we provide is just giving you a place to vent, a place to speak. That alone sometimes works. And we will have conversations in our editorial meeting where we realize we just need to get out of our own way and let you in and just let you drive for an hour. And when we do, it goes really, really well, especially if we pick the right, the right topic. What's the relationship between that, between what you do and our democracy? In what sense? What do you mean, what's the relationship? Well, are we enemies of the people? When you're doing your job right, what impact do you think that has on, a, on democracy? What, what do you think, what kind of service do, you, do we provide? What do you owe your listeners? Well, I think, I think back to the mission of NPR, 
I mean, the stated mission of NPR is to work in partnership with member stations to create a more informed public, one challenged and invigorated by a deeper understanding and appreciation of events, ideas, and cultures. That's our mission, to create a more informed public. If we do that, like I said earlier, what you do with the information is your business. Our job is to make sure that no one in this nation lacks knowledge, context, insight for any reason. Because of your background, your educational level, your, your ability to pay for a, a, a news and information service, what part of the country you're in, how long you've lived in this nation, that no one in the country lacks for high quality, accessible, compelling information about their community, the nation, and the world. That's our job. That, and that's, that's kind of the best service we provide. I think doing that comes coupled with a belief that there's a benefit to that, that it's worth providing this information. Um, Ann Curry once said, journalism is an act of faith in the future. And I think she's right. Why would we do this if we didn't think that we were trying to help? that we were trying to do some good. Now, whether or not you think that we're the enemy of the people, okay, fine, I'm not leaving. I think it is worth noting for the person who seems to be fond of saying that, that his job is governed by the Constitution. I'm a journalist. My job is protected by the Constitution. So there's that. I dig it. Uh, so you, you strike me as very unafraid of areas to tackle on your show. I, however, carry a lot of fear, a fear of messing up. And I think there have been quite a few mess ups in the history of journalism that yes. are worth analyzing. I'm wondering, are there any that stick out to you as instructive for what not to do in the future? That I've made myself? Um, or, or others have made. I would have to think think on that. Um, I think what might materialize in the future, and this story is not soup yet, so we have to keep open minds thus far, but I'm waiting to see more about the way that certain news outlets have chosen to run with or not run with stories related to the Me Too movement, especially with powerful men. You know, is it true that X journalist had Y story about Z powerful man that he took to his bosses and they were like, eh, and had to leave and go to someone else to get published. I'm waiting to see what those turn into to see if, if there are some larger organizational issues with the way that we report, what we report. You know, that whole idea about journalism being about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Yes. Which, <laughs> which is, and I don't seek to be an afflictor, but, you know, we have to be able to do this work in an unflinching way, and I'm interested to see how that plays out. Again, I don't, we don't know enough to assign any blame at all. At least I don't think it's been made public yet, but that's kind of something I'm keeping an eye on. And I think the thing that we're talking about here is Ronan Farrow. If, yes. So we'll see what he says. Yeah, um, we'll see what he says. So uh, what journalists do you read slash listen to the most often and why? I don't think I have a, well, mostly Stevens Keep and Rachel Martin because I wake up with them every day. But I don't have a whole lot that I'm like a super fan 
of, I, I will confess, I, I try, because of the work that I do, to get into a little bit of everything. So I, I intentionally try not to camp out with any one outlet. But yeah, I don't have a whole lot of like favorites these days. It's a little weird. My tastes have shifted ever since I started doing this show. Hopefully for the better, I hope. Oh my God, I'm sorry. This is, this is a really good question and one that I really identify with, but the, the handwriting is so small. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I heard a statistic that enrollment in journalism school is up for the first time in a decade. What advice do you have for incoming journalists? Are schools adapting to the needs of the industry and effectively preparing your professionals? I'll answer the second part first. I think some schools are absolutely um, adapting to the needs of their students. Uh, depends, and then some students are just figuring out what schools they really want to go to. Like at Cal, where I taught, there are plenty of documentary students who go there. There's an increasing number of audio and podcasting students. I taught podcasting at Cal. So I think students are getting more savvy as to what they need out of a journalism education. Um, and, and also savvy to the fact that they don't need a journalism degree to be journalists. So J schools have to rethink the way that we teach, which is perfectly appropriate. Um, as for the things that, uh, the, the, repeat the first part of the question just so I know I answer it fully. Uh, what advice do you have for incoming journalists? For incoming journalists, um, take a screenwriting class. Love take that. a screenwriting class. I would say take a screenwriting class and take, and I didn't take this, but I should have, take a social work class. Mm. I suggest a screenwriting class because journalism is all about storytelling. And some journalists are just, they, they don't understand story. Like, they shouldn't be reading the Wall Street Journal. They should be reading Story by Robert McKee or, or you know, From Script to Screen by Sid Field. Like, they, they should be reading, they should be reading, you know, The Poetics. By, they should be reading Aristotle. They should be reading about story. Tell me what happened. Just tell me what happened. Here's a great exercise to do. If you want to get better at your public speaking storytelling skills, think of a movie that you love, that you've seen a thousand times, that you can watch the movie and recite the lines along. Pull out your timer on your phone, set it for one minute, and tell the whole story of that movie in 60 seconds. You should have no problem doing it, because you know it. And when the timer goes beep, 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 that should be the moment you say, thank you very much, beep, and then the timer goes off. Tell it in precisely 60 seconds. That's the job. You have exactly this much space to tell me a story. Whether it's column inches or seconds in a broadcast, you have this much space. And not a millimeter, not a millisecond more. Tell me the story and make it good. That's the screenwriting part. Because it's about the union of the image, of the elements you use, the narrative you create, and how they have to come together to build something compelling, which is the job. I would say take a social work class so that you don't go out into the world like an android with a journalism program in his positronic matrix. So that you understand people. So that you understand when you go to a crime scene and you're talking, there's a murder and then the, the wife is crying over the body in the corner is there and there's kids screaming and there's neighbors who are yelling, that this is a person. Like you were walking into somebody's lived tragedy. Step quietly. Don't be a jackass. You make all of us look bad when you act like a prick on a story. 
Just be a human being. Be nice. Learn how to deal with people, no matter what point in their life they're in, whether they're in pain, whether they're feeling great, whether they're pissed off, and don't judge them for where they are. That's one of the other things I think we do fairly well on this show. There are people who are very upset about whatever issue they're talking about, and they sound off with the upset in their voice or in what they've written. They may be upset for reasonable reasons that affect their life or their health or their family or their business or their community or their state or the country that they love. Their anger may well be an integral part of the story. But if you are so prissy and if you are so impersonable that you can't deal with people who aren't just ready to speak to you with 14-letter words on a graduate school level, what the hell are you doing as a reporter? Go, 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 go be an account. Go do something where you just deal with numbers and not people. If you're not good with people, you shouldn't be a journalist. If you don't like people, if you don't care for people, don't be a journalist. Go do something where you don't have to deal with people. We have a reputation to protect. You will hurt my reputation. Stay out of journalism if you don't like people. Mm. And to the first point about taking a screenwriting class, so my, my first day of my, of my first beat reporting class, my professor who, who worked for a really long time at the New York Daily News uh, wrote on the board, get to the bleeping point and <laughs> underlined it three times. And she says, get to the bleeping point and just would repeat that every single day of class. Anyway, love it. I, 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 she's a woman after my own heart. She was, she was a tough cookie. A lot of journalists will begin with, in, in America today, with the geopolitical and sociological ramification. Remember the opening to Star Wars? Star, I love Star Wars because the whole point of Star Wars is to hook you at the very beginning. Remember the beginning of the first movie, episode four? What's the first line in that crawl? It is a time of civil war. That's the hook. So you immediately you're grounded in the story. But the fact is, that's not the hook. What's the actual hook at the beginning of Star Wars? It's not even a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's the hook. And then the story's wrapped around it. Doesn't diminish the movie, but it means that he knew the craft and he put the story inside of a wrapper that worked. And sometimes as journalists, we don't feel comfortable being that sensational. And I'm not for sensationalism. I am, however, for not boring your audience. Sometimes you just got to make it interesting, make it compelling, make sure that people want to hear what you have to say. You spent all day telling this story, so tell the hell out of it. Like, make it, make it pop and start with the point and then build out from there. This is from the young man who asked the last question, too. His, I think his second question is also excellent. If you are going into journalism, you should, because these are good questions. Good. Um, I'm a bit frustrated by how current events reporting has become like reporting about sporting events. When will this type of reporting end? Why has the industry become that way? <laughs> That's okay. It won't, because you like it. Les Moonves, who was the former chairman and CEO of CBS Corporation, once said, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. And as vile as that comment was, he was right. I mean, again, this is the marketplace of ideas. 
you're responsible for what you put in your head. And they can measure how many of us watch what we watch, listen to what we listen to, read what we read. Especially now, in the digital era, they have even better, more granular data. So if we're reporting it like a, it's a sporting event, it's because sports are fun and interesting. And a lot of the other reporting is not that interesting. It doesn't hook. I mean, there's, there's a reason why 1A at the top begins with about seven seconds of copy before I say from WAMU and NPR in Washington, this is 1A. It's to force us, or me, because I write those billboards, to hook you at the very top of the show, to figure out a way to get you in and to intrigue you off the top so that we keep you for the rest of the hour. And then we got to rehook you again in the intro. And then if you're just joining us, we're talking about X with these guests. Like we have to make sure that you keep coming back because you'll drift. Even a smart, erudite, thoughtful public radio audience who turns on NPR and never shuts it off has other things to do. So every now and then I have to go, hey, come back, woohoo, follow the bunny, back to me. And I have to make sure that I still got you. And that's not your fault. Again, not your job to be interested. Our job to be interesting. If people are not paying attention to the thoughtful, erudite journalism that you're doing, one possibility is maybe you're boring. Maybe you need to raise your storytelling game. It doesn't mean the stories you're picking are bad. It may just mean you need to be aware of where the audience is. You may need to, as Wayne Gretzky suggested, skate where the puck is going. So that kind of content is attracting the audience you want. How can you compete with that? Keep your values, but be more compelling. What are they not doing? Do you offer an alternative? Do you play their game, but better? Do you get completely away from it and let them go and just decide those may not be the audience members that we want because chasing them would compromise the core of our values. Those are all options. I would, however, suggest that we temper that concern because NPR stations, by and large across the country, have slowly been gaining audience. Not gigantic jumps, but you know the audience is doing pretty well. And the nightly newscasts, it's worth noting that the three main network newscasts, NBC, ABC, CBS, they're doing all right, but they've been steadily losing audience. The only nightly newscast that gained audience over the last year or so was the PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodruff. So PBS fans. Yeah, so don't give me that about why people like this other kind of uh, journalism. Go do better and find the people who want what you have. Remember, you can only offer them the two glasses and let them choose. If they don't want what you have, that's fine. But if you disdain them for it, they won't come to you ever. Maya Angelou once said, people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And if you make the audience you want feel like they're not smart enough, like they're too base and too, too low in their tastes to understand that what you are doing is so much better, you will lose them forever. And then one day you'll be wondering, where is my audience? They were one step away from you, and you kicked them away. Don't ever, ever give your audience any reason to walk away. Always hold the door open for everyone. Never turn anyone away. I like that. Yeah, that was good. Also, a useful idea in relationships, meet people where they're at. I yeah. think that's 
that's helpful. Um, yeah. So we've talked about you know how to how to deal with tough ideas. This is a question about how to deal with tough feelings. <laughs> uh, how do you deal with hopelessness during this politically hostile time? Do you believe there is a point in the near future when the tumult amongst sides, red or blue, black or white, etc., will die down, or do you think we're just getting started? I don't. Well, dealing with tumult is built into the democracy. I mean, that is what our democracy has had literally since we became a nation. Like, the very first Congress had the pro-administration party and the anti-administration party, what eventually became the Federalist, Thomas Jefferson's party. So there were the people who liked George Washington and what he was trying to do, and there were the people who didn't like George Washington and what he was trying to do. We have always been a divided nation. Always. It's just it's the way we're built. And it's great. Because think about what we were. We were a colony of a nation where division meant death. If you weren't for the king, you died. So the ability to be divided is our birthright as Americans. Dissent is your birthright because you're here. Division is not a bug. It's a feature. <laughs> but the flip side, before you clap, because there's the flip side. The flip side is that we're also a nation that was founded in the values of the Enlightenment, where we can get the facts, and we can believe the facts, and we can make decisions based on the facts. That's the risk. It's not the division. It's the resolution. We have doubled down on division and we have retreated from resolution because there's money to be made in keeping people divided. <coughs> there's money to be made in keeping people ginned up. There's money to be made in reminding you who you're supposed to be pissed at. Remember that speech Howard Beale gives in Network? Which, if you're going to be a journalist, you must watch Network. Oh. If you're going to be an American citizen who's part of the democracy, you must watch Network. I thought we had you. Came out in 1976. It was directed by Patty Shayevsky. Stars um, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall, Faye Dunaway, William Holden. It's a brilliant movie. Um, it's, it's about a network news anchor who is the fourth ranked newscast out of four. He decides he's going to retire, and he announces that he's going to kill himself on the air for his last show. Ratings shoot up. Network takes him off the air because he's manifestly ill, but the head of the entertainment division takes over the network news hour and brings him back, and he becomes the number one show, not among news programs, but the number one show on television. And it's all about what happens from there. That famous speech that he gives the night he comes in from the rain, I don't know what, I know things are bad, they're worse than bad, it's depression. That the speech that he gives, I don't know what to do about the depression or the inflation or the Russians or the Germans, but first I know you've got to get mad. You've got to say I'm a human, damn it, my life has value. That whole speech, that was the risk that Paddy Shaevsky was trying to warn us about. Remember, the, he says, I don't know what to do, but I know you've got to get mad. All he gives people is the anger. Then he can galvanize into action. But he starts by selling that anger. That's not our business model. We're not selling anger on NPR. We're selling information. But we know that anger is lucrative. That's the risk. And I think the concern is that we get so comfortable in knowing who to hate that we forget that we have to resolve these issues. 
That's why what happened today was so remarkable. Regardless of what you think of the outcome of the hearing, the fact that Jeff Flake could literally cross to the other side of the room, talk to Democrats, and figure out a way forward is exactly the way that the system is supposed to work. That works. Regardless of what you think of the outcome, that's the way it's supposed to happen. So the trick is just remembering that division is a feature and not a bug, but it is a feature. The resolution is what makes democracy work. That's the risk, not the tumult. It's, it's liking it too much. So I've been instructed to wrap things up. However, I, do, I did save this last question because I just thought it was really sweet and caring and not something that journalists are often asked. So Joshua, I love your shoes. <laughs> How in the heck do you manage doing two shows a day? I'm worried about you burning out. Signed, Sean the Tofu Eater. How you doing? How am I doing? How, please, this person doesn't want you to burn out. I don't want me to burn out either. Um, Rupert, how are we doing? We're pretty, we're hanging in there, I think. Are we? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I made a comment about vegetarians on the show once and got a lot of angry tweets. Um, whatever steak you don't want, pass it to me. That did not go over well on Twitter. How am I doing? I'm, I'm, how do you fight burnout? How do I fight burnout? Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just have to endure it. Um, you know, well, I do have a PlayStation 4 Pro with a VR headset, and I have no shame about getting lost in cyberspace, and I'm loving every minute of it. I, I, I am a big fan of silence these days, of just being at home with no music, no TV, and just being very quiet. Lately, just kind of being alone with no additional sound is very therapeutic. Um, the gym, frequently, although that's mixed in terms of helping me like relieve stress, because if the workout doesn't go well, then that, add, that can add stress. But it varies, but generally it's helpful. Um, I sometimes can't avoid it. It's, this is hard work, and this is a hard time, and the things that are going on in the democracy that are, you know, that upset the nation, many of them upset me too. And, or just seeing that people around are so ginned up like that, there's a, a residual effect. It rubs off. It, you, it can't help but rub off. It's like being a, a therapist or a clinician or a social worker. Like you, you, you wear that all day and you bring it home. So sometimes I can't shake it off. Sometimes I go to bed with it. Sometimes... It is very hard doing this work. And it, there are even days where it's hard doing the work, but then I have to show up and be around nice people like you who love the show, and I have to smile like everything's cool. And, it, and all I'm thinking is like, how are we gonna tell this story? How am I gonna make it through tomorrow? I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm burned out. What am I gonna do? So I don't always deal with it well. I mean, I, don't, I, I, I try to stay as healthy as I can. I don't smoke, I don't drink. Um, You're a journalist? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what kind Sorry. of reporter are you? You picked a hell of a year to quit drinking. <laughs> I don't. And maybe I should, I don't know. But just one little sip. And sometimes there's no escaping burnout. Like my flight to Seattle was three and a half hours late. And so I landed at SeaTac at like 11. And I didn't get to my hotel with this 
yeah, chatty Lyft driver who would not shut up until after midnight. So I fell into bed at 12.15 and had to be up the very next day at 3.30. So we could be at KUOW at 5, so we could be tracking pre-production by 6.30, so we could be on the air live at 7 from 7 to 9. And no, don't, listen, don't, don't weep for me. Because, yeah, <laughs> That's how your producers treat you. I'm not weeping for you ever. You're just fine, mister, you're just fine. When I think about how many people will go their whole lives never having anyone listen to anything they have to say, I suck it up. You know, the work that we do is sacred. It is essential to our democracy. Thomas Jefferson said, were it up to me that we should have government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to choose the latter. Our founders knew that the enlightenment values that they imbued in this democracy depended on people like you and me knowing what the hell is going on and knowing it reliably and knowing it consistently and knowing it quickly. Journalism is a bulwark against tyranny, against the fall of our democracy, it holds us together and prevents us from pulling all the way apart because it allows us to see each other and understand each other and interact, to have a place for that tension. So if it means that there is the occasional day where I gotta wake up at 3.30 in the morning to go do my job, fine. If it means that I gotta stay up late studying the packets that our producers have put together or reading chapters in a book or watching a movie for the next, okay, fine. If it means that I have to deal with uncomfortable conversations, so be it. Because I will go to my grave knowing what it's like to be heard and knowing that I helped someone else get heard. There are so many people in this country who are screaming at the top of their lungs and they should be heard and no one will ever hear what they have to say. And we get to make a dent in that. We get to make people seen. We get to connect you. That is a gift. That's a blessing. That's a mission. That's an evangel. That's not work for suckers. That's not work for lightweights. This is full contact democracy. And everyone walks out with bruises even the winners. And so I don't seek burnout. I will back off on days when I just need a personal day. I'll say, hey, Rupert, I, can we find me a day? But in the moments in between, I try to focus on what we're doing here. This is about the wellness of the United States of America. Nothing less. Every single one of us who does this work or who patronizes this work is doing it because we are making an act of faith in the future. And it's too important for us to stop. Why stop? We're making progress. And if we stop, even if we're not making progress, that would be so much worse. What's the point in quitting? If quitting would solve anything, I'd drop all of this tonight, but it won't fix anything. Continuing might not either, but my chances are much better. I just try to keep in mind that line from the immortal bard, Dr. Seuss, from the end of the Lorax. 
unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Will you all please give it up for Joshua Johnson? Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. As they, as they say in yoga class, give it up for yourselves, too, for showing up tonight, because our work relies on you, and thank you. Thank you very much.